Welcome to The Weird, a beginner's guide to weird fiction. New to the weird fiction scene? Know a lot, but want to fill in the corners and better understand how it all fits together? Where is the fuzzy boundary that separates weird fiction from horror, dark fantasy, and other genres? Join our experts as they provide a survey of weird fiction and history and today, tracing the roots, concerns, trends, and major writers in the field. So sit back, relax, and get ready to get weird. I think uh, we're missing one panelist, but uh, and I saw him on the elevator, so I know he was going this direction. But I guess we're going to start. Um, you are sitting in the Welcome to the Weird, a Beginner's Guide to Weird Fiction panel at the Necronomicon Providence Convention. If you are in the wrong place, they're doing the real estate convention in the Omni. Um, that should open a lot, over a lot better over there. Uh, my name is Simon Strancis. I was... Uh, the co-editor of the year's Best Weird Fiction, Volume 3. I've also published about five collections of uh, short stories. Um, and I'm going to let the other authors introduce themselves, or the other participants introduce themselves in a moment. I just wanted to, uh, I guess, go over what this panel's about. Uh, it's about, it's about a, it's a beginner's guide to the weird. Uh, I don't know. We're going to talk about weird fiction. I think um, what I want to do is avoid getting into the morass of what is weird fiction? Because I think you're going to hear that on every panel at this convention over and over and over again. And I could talk about it for an hour and a half just on my own. So instead, what I think we'll do is um, we'll let the panelists introduce themselves, uh, give a brief, brief description of what you think the weird is, and we'll see how they all disagree with each other. And then we'll just ignore it all and talk about history and the, uh, the different, different authors. So if you're taking notes, get your pens out. Um, I will start on this end. Okay, well, it's a little bit exciting. <laughs> uh, hello, and nice to meet uh, all of you. Um, my name is Elaine Chilowan-Polson, and I'm an independent scholar uh, based in Cambridge, UK. I'm Russian, and uh, my main, for, for a very long time, uh, my main academic field uh, was Russian studies, Slavic studies, fiction uh, studies. It's okay. Uh, but somehow, a few years ago, when I finally read H.P. Lovecraft in English, in original, I immediately figured out that my field would be broadened. So, and it happened. <laughs> so now word fiction and academic literature is one of my fields as well. Uh, I tried to translate certain things uh, from English to Russian. I participated in conferences and academic events connected to neo-Gothic decadent studies, um, also fundus yoga studies, so to speak, and also academic work of so it's going to be. Um, as for weird fiction, this is a very broad subject, as you politely pointed out. So to me, um, it connects to this, um, I would say, probably, it, it, maybe I'm wrong, I could imagine it, probably wrong, 
but that's what I figure out. To me, it connects with this post-fantasy of the zeitgeist, I'd say, simply because we all know that word fiction uh, and at the time when pretty much all world uh, was about to change, change drastically. Uh, the country of when I was born, Russia, changed because we had the revolution. Um, then we have, of course, First World War. Then America was on the eve of uh, the Great Depression. And all those um, social, political things, they kind of shape um, how we perceive literature, how we perceive our um, probably understanding of literature. And of course, word fiction was the way, the tool to uh, show us how actually it could be done in a different way. Not exactly like in a gothic way, not exactly like in future sci-fi way, but exactly this way when incomprehensible thing could be could be empowered, kind of power, powerful and inspirational at the same time. So that is what weird fiction is to me. I would say something like that. Okay. Hi, my name is Molly Tanzer. I'm the author of Creatures of Will and Temper and Creatures of Want and Ruin and the forthcoming Creatures of Charm and Hunger, which are a series of novels about women dealing with um, ineffable cosmic beings that they call demons, but are definitely not um, in the Judeo-Christian sense. I also am the author of The Weird Western Vermilion and the British Fantasy Award-nominated collection of Pretty Mouth, which is historical Lovecraftian fiction. Um, and as to the answer of what the weird is, I'm, I don't know at all either, but uh, I would say that the weird provides, it's a, it's a fictional mode in which limited or no answers are provided in response to ineffable questions. And I, I like to keep it broad because I too have been on Facebook and seen the fights about this topic, and I think that's why I have limited things to say on the matter. So I'm going to hand it over to you. I'm Ben Andrews. I'm the author of the Into the Legacy series, Winter Tide and Deepwoods. I've also got a new collection out called Imperfect Commentaries, and I'm more part of this panel. I'm the co-writer of the Lovecraft Reading Blog series on Twitter.com. We just did our 250th post, so we've been diving into all sorts of corners of Lovecraftian and and with all that experience, I do not have a really solid definition if I was being snarky, which I often am. I would say that the weird that can be defined is not the true weird. If I'm being practical, I would say that the reread covers stories that use this speculative fiction to get at what it means to live in an uncaring universe or what it means to be alienated from the universe. It also covers anything that plays around with H.P. Lovecraft's tropes and the Lothosian creations, whether or not it's trying to get at those particular themes, and it covers any horror that makes use of anything scary in the ocean, because that's fun. <laughs> Uh, hi, my name is Pedro Riley. I'm the resident small fry on the panel. 
Uh, I've got a doctorate in English literature with a specialty in weird fiction and American botanism. Uh, I've had nonfiction published in Dead Reckonings, Cryptic Cthulhu, Lovecraft Annual, and a couple of uh, pieces of short fiction published in various anthologies in the US and in Canada as well, where I'm from. Um, my definition of weird fiction, on the one hand, I'm really tempted to say weird fiction is a genre that stopped existing when horror and science fiction became really strongly delineated categories in the 20th century. Um, but that's kind of a good answer in some respects. I'm more tempted to say that I think weird fiction, whatever it is, whatever shape we might think of it in modern day, it's really designed in opposition, I, I think, aesthetically. I think the original weird fiction writers were writing not Victorian stuff. That was very important to them in a lot of respects. And I think whatever weird fiction comes out in modern day, it has to take the same form. So I hate to say I'll know it when I see it, but I'll know it when I see it. There you go. I'm Peter Mann. I'm the mystery explorer for news editor at Publishers Weekly, a job I've held for nearly 20 years. Uh, but um, I've also uh, done some Lovecraftian writing, including uh, criticism and, and fiction. Uh, the most recent thing that you'll find mine, uh, available in the dealer's room is a uh, reprint of a book originally published in 1986 called The Chronology Out of Time, Dates in the Fiction of H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, this is a third corrected print printing. I actually overlooked some dates uh, back in 1986, and I'm pleased that they're now listed in the addendum in the current edition, uh, including uh, the birth year of Charles Jackson's war. As far as weird, uh, I, I sort of know it when I see it. And I'll give you a, a recent example. Uh, I, uh, a month or two ago, edited a review of the latest novel by Michael Marshall Smith. British writer who's now resident in California. I got as a screenwriter these days. Uh, now I don't remember the title, but I do remember one writer uh, telling a tale uh, from the Publishing Weekly Review. As I say, it's a supernatural thriller. I got a little bit of crime element. Well, in some area of Northern California. Stone walls that run all over the countryside. And the weird thing is, they run through uh, lakes and rivers and over mountains in ways that do not correspond uh, to any kind of human system. So, to me, this is an example of the kind of suggestiveness uh, that uh, the weird, best weird fiction brings. Um, and you know, makes people, you know, first of all, how do we get there? You know, who made these walls? Um, but just from that you know, brief description, we evoke this, this larger universe. So that, that's one aspect of where I, I want to put forward. Well, since this is called the, uh, uh, the Beginner's Guide to Word Fiction, maybe we should talk about where word fiction began. And I know this itself is going to be a fuzzy line, but uh, do we have any authors that we think of as 
weird or proto-weird from the, uh, the beginning? Well, one of our discoveries in, recently in Lovecraft Reread was uh, Francis Stevens, who is sometimes described, and yet we managed to miss her and some of a lot of other people, as the woman who invented weird fiction. And if you read Unseen Unfeared, which is the piece of hers that we've covered so far, it really is. It's very proto-Lovecraftian. It's you know, terrifying truths about the universe that you don't really want to learn but can't help learning. Mm -hmm. Eager to dive into more of her stuff and haven't yet. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's one of those questions, too, that um, I think is sometimes limited by our um, international reading and um, our wherever bias we're coming from in terms of what we pick up automatically. Uh, it's, it's one of those questions like, where did the novel begin, right? Like some people will argue that it's in England in the 18th century, and some people will argue that Don Quixote is the first modern novel, and then other people will argue that The Tale of Genji from Heian period Japan is the first novel. And so I, it, it really depends on what you're looking for and how you define the weird and, and what, what you're reading. Um, I, I don't know, I guess one of the people that I would turn to as a proto-weird author would be Erogawa Rampo. Um, I think Rampo's fiction um, is super strange and um, does not provide a lot of answers to those questions it is asking and often uses disorientation and the thwarting of expectation to unsettle the reader. So that's gonna be my answer to that question. So I'm pass it over. Wasn't the term weird fiction coined by Le Fanet in the uh, 18th, or 19th century? Well, you're a scholar, so maybe you should know the answer to that question. I, I, I think that the term was coined, but it's, it's one of those slippery fishes, right? Because it doesn't mean what we, any of us with our own unique definitions, would think it, that it actually means. Uh, it's not really, well, it's not really nailed down in any sense until Lovecraft's supernatural war and literature, right? Um, I think that there's a lot of, of work in that period that we might look back on and consider weird fiction, and quite enjoyably so, but I, I always wonder what the authors themselves would think, you know, whether or not they would be satisfied with us. <laughs> so, I don't know. My take on it is that uh, we should probably separate, uh, separate um, the weird narratives, weird plots, uh, and like subgenres that, that fiction as something that was traditional, as we've mentioned before. So, um, I think that at a certain extent, we could, for example, see this weird fiction features in Nathaniel Gawthorne. <coughs> Sorry if I pronounce it very long. <laughs> because, of course, Gawthorne uh, stories, novellas, they actually kind of define all, they tick all basically boxes in terms of speaking about things that happen to the main characters, uh, all those unimaginable horrors happen to Puritans <laughs> in New England, I believe, because it's something like this, this area, I believe, so, like maybe Massachusetts or something like that. So even kind of geographical suggestions could give you the hint that it could be potentially uh, regarded as a proto-word fiction. And it's interesting that uh, we also could see the elements of weird fiction in absolutely traditional naturalist and realist authors such as uh, Dickens, for example. 
which I see as ghost stories. Uh, one could argue that, of course, it's sort of like ghost stories, which are mostly like Gothic stories, but at the same time, they could be also uh, regarded as sort of like proto-word fiction as well. Uh, so yes, the elements of that, they kind of started Well, I mean, uh, you know, Vandermeer, Jeff Vandermeer, and then and Vandermeer, who, whose book, The Weird, you're probably going to hear about a lot, if not on this panel, then at this convention, because uh, it's a good overview of the whole genre. It's basically this panel in a book. Um, and John Clute and uh, China Melville, they all talked about how weird fiction is this combination of, of uh, science fiction and fantasy and horror. It's this crossover place, this liminal place that's uh, transgressive to what came before. So I mean, uh, so the question to me is whether things like M.R. James and E.F. Benson and you know, the ghost writers, the ghost story writers, for example, were writing weird fiction. Whether we can consider them writing weird fiction because they were writing something different than the, the gothic that came before them. That's well, I guess that sort of fits into what we were talking about with transgressive spaces, right? Um, if you're writing in opposition, then do we, do we want to take, for example, the idea that if you are writing an oppositional, ineffable text, that that is, are we going to try to work with that definition of weird there? Because that seems to speak to that. I feel like... I like that. I didn't want to talk about what the weird is, but I feel like it's this, this albatross around Sorry. all our necks, yeah. and there's no way to get away with from it because we have to define... We have to talk about what it is in order to talk about who's doing it. It's true, but that your Taoist answer was like so charming, and that um, I do feel like, well, I feel like Taoism itself has a sort of um, weird cosmic horror angle to it um, that I've always really enjoyed. Where you know, with Taoism, you have this perspective that um, you must embrace the uncaring universe. Like, don't be afraid that nothing out there cares what you do, or you know, if you're here at Necronomicon or you're at home you know, wishing you were somewhere else, like it, or if you were happy in your life or not, it doesn't matter. There is, a, there, is, there, is a, there is a dance happening out there that is beyond your understanding and beyond your comprehension, but that shouldn't terrify you. It should give you a sense of joy because there's an ultimate meaninglessness that you can approach there that is comforting if you can handle it. And I never really thought of putting the weird into the context of Taoism, and now I've been unable to think of anything else since you said that first thing. So, um, like, I, at least I'd like to talk about that some more. If you have any more thoughts on that, like, I just was super into that. So, I mean, so that's one of the things that I've been thinking about since you were talking about the weird as in opposition, um, because what there is out there in the literature to be in opposition to varies tremendously from time to time. When you talk about weird fiction as originally being anti-Victorian, in that case it's very clear that it goes against this assumption that there is a clear order in which humans are on top and certain humans are on top of humanity. And you know, not every weird fiction author, naming their names, has been good at undermining all of those assumptions or as, as no, I take that back. Well, let's try to make assumptions. He just thought that was terrifying. Um, but as you move through the 20th century and into the 21st, 
sometimes what you're in opposition to is this assumption of optimism and order. And right now we live in a time when so many of the assumptions out there are dystopian. And so I think there's room for, and I've heard a certain amount of myself because I do believe this, weird fiction that takes a more joyful, optimistic tone on the meaninglessness and uncaringness of the universe. So if, if you look back at those original Victorian assumptions of an ordered universe that puts certain people on top, to me that is a pretty horrifying assumption about the way the universe works. And therefore a universe of what has sometimes been described as cosmic horror might very well be a much better place to live. Um, and that makes me think of someone who I would not have described as working in weird fiction, but who does follow that way of thinking about the universe is Ted Chang, who is one of the current masters of the speculative short story. And so much of his work is, well, what if the universe worked this way? Would that be okay? What if it worked this way? <laughs> I'd like to jump off that a, a little bit. I really like the idea of, of that attitude in cosmic horror, weird fiction, joy. And I mean, that goes right back to Lovecraft when he was writing about virtue science fiction and how the response to what the, the one break from reality should be awe. I mean, it shouldn't necessarily be terror or fear or anything like that. Um, and I think. You know, it, it goes back also to, again, Lovecraft talking about how we have to get away from uh, ghost stories, sheeted forms clanking with chains, right? That's what makes M.R. James so wonderful, is that none, I don't think there's, well, there's one sheeted figure in M.R. James, if I remember correctly. And that's pretty much it. All these ghosts are, are completely different. They're, it's, again, aesthetically oppositional. Um, and when I think of, you know, modern weird writers that, that inspire awe with me, I consider aesthetically kind of oppositional in a lot of respects. People like Ramsey Campbell come naturally to mind, Thomas Lugatti come naturally to mind, um, so on and so forth. Uh, uh, the novel by Tom, Lavelle's novel, I think is fantastic for that. And it kind of sucks to say, I think, a little bit, but if we want weird fiction to be oppositional aesthetically, we have to be willing to look beyond a lot of Lovecraftian tropes, which I really hate to say, and I feel like a traitor for saying that, but. You know, if we're looking, if weird fiction rejected the tropes and the, the thematic structures of the previous century, the Victorian period, and their aesthetic creations, then don't we have to do the same thing to some extent? Yeah, it's the argument that, you know, the capital weird, weird of the, of Lovecraft and that whole circle of writers is uh, by being too beholden to it and writing our own versions of it, we are not, we're not transgressing. We are just repeating what's been done before. So it, is, it, is it weird? Because it was, it was weird back then, because it was transgressive, but it's no longer weird now. We have to do something different if we want to really think of it as weird fiction. So but, this is why I do get nervous about the conversation about what weird fiction is, because it then gets very quickly into the conversation about what weird fiction is not. And then you end up throwing out some things that may in fact be worthwhile to read. Well, you know, we have, with, with weird, with horror especially, which is my, you know, had uh, topic. We have the capital W weird and we have the lowercase weird, right? So we can write, if we want to write capital W weird fiction, 
it can still be, I'm, so I'm going to say derivative, but I don't mean derivative necessarily. Um, but what we, what we should want, I think, as an author is to aspire to double, you know, a smaller case weird and do something that's transgressive in what's different than what's done before. Well, it's almost, we're almost getting into a conversation of like, what is modern art, right? And I, I'm super into that conversation because to me, like modern art means something. It's a period in time where modernism was being embraced and discussed. And then somebody, somebody will say, oh yeah, there, it's, this, is, this is modern art. And it's like, well, modern doesn't necessarily mean right now. Now modern means like the 50s. And that's, that's, so that's strange. So I, I'm super into these capital, these like lowercase, uppercase demarcations of like what we're talking about because it does, I think, um, honor, honor a period in time when something was being done and, and we can see that and um, then also expands it by saying like, well, there's also things that fit that aren't this. And I kind of like those tiered um, demarcations because they, they do allow for a bigger conversation. But it, it's hard because I think some of the, the best weird fiction being written is still in a Lovecraftian bent, but it's the stuff that, that isn't, um, like you know how a Lovecraft story is gonna end. They, they all in the same way. I, I, I love them. I'm just saying that there's pretty much that, with the assemble of like the Dunwich Horror, where it's like, hooray, we won. It's like, oh no. And um, I think that there's a space for that. And I think there's a space for Lovecraftian fiction that then inverts or subverts, like you were talking about the joyful weird, like there's some of that in Lovecraft, but unless you're you're willing to step into the shoes of a deep one, then like how, how do you find that ecstasy in nihilism almost? Um, although that's a cap lower, lower case nihilism, not uppercase nihilism. And, um, so yeah, it is a really complicated thing, but I, I do like to see people expanding against it and then people expanding within it because I think there's, there's room for both sets of um, like ideas coming into a fictional, a fictional um, aesthetic like that. And I, I'd hate to see, I, whenever people are like, well, what's, what's better? It's like, oh, I don't know. Um, because I, I like to see both and I, and I want to see both continuing. Um, but I do, I do think that there's a way to be transgressive within the mode of the capital W weird. And there's also avenues of being almost, I don't know if we're, if we're using derivative is not a bad word here of derivative within the lowercase weird. So I don't know. That's not a good answer. Pass. <laughs> meta about this conversation because in failing to perfectly define the weird, we are proving that human defined categorization of the universe is never actually going to be an accurate categorization of the universe. The other thing this is making me think of is a story that I would not recommend as a good starting place for the weird, uh, which is Lovecraft's The Unnameable, which is a story in which a couple of weird fiction aficionados are sitting around talking about whether you can actually write something that gets at things that you can't put words on. And they sit around on a gravestone arguing about this for two pages, and then this terrifying, indescribable monster shows up and you know answers the question by being unnameable. Do you think we can... Um... I think we can put, I'm trying to formulate my thought very quickly. Do you think that uh, the weird is almost generational, where we transgress from what came before us in one period, and then by the time it's fully adopted by the, by the field, we have to transgress again. So every 10 years or so, there's a new, there's a new weird. 
Mm. You mean like how every generation thinks they invented sex? Uh, more like how every generation has to be a slayer. Ah. Thank you. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with putting a really strong periodization on it like that. Because, um, I mean, again, to go back to M.R. James, right, he's the Victorian writing Victorian ghost stories that are not Victorian ghost stories, really. Well, I think, you know, to get on ghost stories for a second, I think uh, like when I started falling down this rabbit hole 20 years ago or so, for me, what we call weird fiction now was we called ghost stories. Because if you look at James, like you think you even said earlier, he's got a ghost in like two or three stories, and the rest are um, are not. <laughs> They're not ghosts, but we call that sort of feat. We call that area of, uh, of writing ghost stories because we didn't have another term for it, or at least one that was uh, popular. And if, you know, I think we get weird. Weirdest is a, is a popular name right now to throw on. To things like that, but it's always this amorphous genre because it crosses over so many other genres. Nothing? Yeah. Um, maybe we should start talking about some authors as well. <laughs> I'd like to just put in a plug for a crossover author, John Connolly, Uh, read Moby Dick, 
and even uses the word cosmic. Well, rereading Roman Dick, I, in the chapter on the whiteness of the whale, there are phrases like you know, the, the nameless horror, the, the unnameable terror. There are these, these little snippets that uh, clearly must have resonated with, with, with Lovecraft and that might have known this the first time I read Moby Dick. And so now I can imagine Lovecraft uh, reading Moby Dick and coming to certain passages and saying, aha, Melville is on the same path that I am. Uh, and it's, of course, some, something is distraction in other respects, but um, I, I, I would argue the fact that there is an influence on Lovecraft the Dunn uh, that there um, echoes of the moment of the day in that story. Talk a little bit about how um, weird fiction isn't strictly a uh, North American and uh, Western uh, field. Yes, I just basically two sons are two rather copies of things. So uh, speaking about the canon, uh, so we're talking about periodization and chronology of weird fiction, and the thing is, uh, we should we, we all should understand that weird fiction um, has been defined as such here mm -hmm. in North America not even just in all kind of Western European world, and especially not in my country. Because, for example, Lovecraft uh, is defined as a horror writer, for example, in Russian theory of literature. Or rather, pre-horror, because it was just, again, speaking about periodization, about chronology. So, um, when we start talking about weird fiction and about the features, we need to understand that it would be actually also connected could be connected to a particular place. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would say that, from my point of view, I think that um, word fiction also could be regarded as such from the very beginning that it wasn't mainstream. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the mainstream literature. We all remember that, of course, uh, okay, they published their things in these pulp fiction magazines. They just tried to, especially Lovecraft, actually, he was a devoted uh, contributor to all those things. but. None of these huge publishing houses, they didn't actually just offer them anything. So basically all these big publications, they started after, unfortunately, Lovecraft died. Just nearly immediately, basically, like in a few months or something had happened. So we probably also have to think about this definition, so how we could just work this mainstream and non-mainstream fiction, so to speak. So I'd just like to, to put it slightly even deeper because now it's mainstream, it's pretty much mainstream. Mm -hmm. You could say that, yes, Lovecraft is, is mainstream as if you just would imagine, maybe sometimes slightly annoying, because all those cool kind of plush figures and stuff, and the toys and whatever. <laughs> but at the same time, it didn't start like that, right? So it was absolutely new. It was formalist in a way, from the formalist point of view. I could, I could actually just compare him with our formalist Russian writers from the 20s, because of the style. So, what exactly that? It wasn't simplest literature, no. It wasn't 
modernist literatures we could actually just look at Macon, for example, because he was a proper Edwardian writer, Welsh, whatever. Uh, so it was the next step, basically, and non-mainstream at the time. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it's also it's just it's, it's um, important to think of this as well. Uh, sorry, just it's a bit no, different tour yes. of the whole thing, but I think it's important to. I think we're. This. I mean, just to jump off that a bit, I think it's interesting that weird fiction, talking about weird fiction being mainstream now, and I think that's even a, as a reflection, I think, of our time. And if we accept the idea that weird fiction is this melding of different genres, um, right now in this post-internet world, pre-current internet world, whatever kind of world this is with the internet, um, everything is getting mixed together, and we're seeing, we're seeing all the silos breaking down, and it's, like, it's the perfect time for something like weird fiction. Uh, because it is, it's reflective of, like, the world is weird fiction. Well, and I think that there's also, I think one of the reasons we're seeing a, a um, like a, there's so much out there right now, and I think it is because um, publishing has been made so much easier with the internet and with various platforms that are available and things like that, and so it's, there's more of it out there and it's becoming more diverse and more accessible because of just the means of production and the means of consumption that are out there. I mean, I think one of the reasons that we're seeing this this concurrent rise of like the, the flowering of the weird along with the commodifying and the commercializing of the weird where we are getting Cthulhu plushies and, you know, all those kinds of things. And I'm not against them. I, I know that there's like a weird knife fight happening about it, but it, it's just that there, there wasn't, um, that, that wasn't possible before. And now that we have all these, I mean, any site where you can upload your, your t-shirt design and then people can buy it and like maybe you get a royalty. I don't, I don't know how that works. Um, but, you know, there's, there's all of that. And so people can find like that Lovecraft shirt that they need or that um, this weird, this non-Lovecraftian but weird um, micro-press um, pamphlet that's like a graphic novel that's also a poem. Um, and like it's like this is for me, and I think that's really cool about it. But it has it has sort of led to this even more the, the more anxious that we get about the weird. I think is going to only increase with sort of the ability of people to put their weird output out there. And then we're all like, oh no, we're we're modern humans, so we have to put these things into categories. So how do we how do we rank them, and how do we how do we put them in boxes and things like that? But I think it's kind of neat. I don't know. I I have my I have my concerns, but I also have my my joy at seeing that. I mean, look at how well attended this convention is, and it's a Lovecraft convention, and it's but it's also now we're discussing like, well, how can we how can we get away from that guy? And I I think that's very interesting as well in terms of that international and and small and um, like sort of punk aesthetic that um, the weird has always had. I really like the the sense of. You know, I, I, I want to get away from kind of like Frederick Jameson's critiques of pastiche and, and, and so on. You know, as much as I love S.T. Joshi's commentary, which he's been saying for years now, that the weird fiction that will survive is those authors that have something to say beyond just frightening people, right? Uh, and, I mean, that goes back to Lovecraft. He said effectively the same thing. But I do love a lot of that ephemera, right? That window dressing stuff. I I've got like six plus Cthulhu. My wife bought me one book when I got my master's degree. Um, you know, I love that. I love the pastiches. And I, I love the fact that one of the reasons why I think, and I, I kind of, I'm jumping off what you were saying there, Ron. I think it's become so difficult for us to create really strong definitional boundaries and, and pigeonhole things is because this is everywhere, right? Like, talking about how to lead people to weird fiction is kind of redundant in modern day to some extent because every, almost every person I know in my personal life knows about Lovecraft, knows about Cthulhu, knows about. 
at least a, a smattering of the authors. They've read Stephen King's Cthulhu stories, right? Um, we don't really need to leave the horse to the well anymore, right? Like, it's already there. Um, there's a lot of misinformation, there's a lot of misconceptions that are still out there, but the history of the genre, if we're comfortable calling it the genre, um, and there's, you know, some lack of attention on current writers uh, that I think should get more attention. Uh, Lafarge's The Night Ocean, I think, is, is absolutely a beautiful fiction novel. Uh, it's one of the few novels I've recommended to literally every person I've ever met. Um, but I, there's nothing supernatural about it. It's, it's a beautiful novel about weird fiction and is weird fiction. Uh, I think he deserves a lot more attention on that. But people know about this stuff. People, people get it. We're here, right? We don't have to be led to it. And I think that's kind of great, but it also makes things more difficult for those of us that write and think mm -hmm. about this stuff a lot and trip over our own shoelaces when we're trying to do things like the fun. Well, I'm going to take a slightly different take on that and suggest that this spread of different and sometimes plushy takes on the weird is an opportunity to come around to alienation and opposition sort of from the backside. So uh, I am someone who was introduced to H.P. Lovecraft via uh, Call of Cthulhu's Sanity Point jokes and Plush Cthulhu's and that was, that was my exposure to Lovecraft for many years starting in college. And when I came back around to the originals, which with all their problematicity, it was both alienating and thought-provoking because I had come first to sort of the safest parts of these tropes. And whereas originally a lot of this stuff was shocking because it was new and because, you know, if you go back and read the actual Call of Cthulhu story, it's really hard to read it as it was meant to be read because the tropes are so familiar, whereas at the time everything about it would have been shocking and new. But now different things about it are shocking, and the fact that these familiar tropes are not comfortable or even always well done is an opportunity to question that comfort using the tropes that were themselves once questioning of that comfort. And I think the fact that we're now able to also connect with these different takes on the weird from so many different sources and so many different countries and backgrounds and discover things that were written elsewhere in parallel that you know, Lovecraft never got the chance to see because we didn't have the internet at the time is another opportunity to, to do something constructive with the fact that things that are comfortable to one person may be uncomfortable to another, other than making that a problem. It's also an opportunity for art. And there's some really, I think, there's some cool, I, I'm, I'm trying to combine what you're saying with what Elena was saying about the, the international perspective, right? I'm reminded of, I, I read a, a set of anthologies of Japan translated weird fiction. And I was shocked to find how, how traditional Cthulhu mythos, like Derlethian Cthulhu mythos, they were. And that, that made me wonder about what, what was translated from weird fiction in North America to Japan, and then perhaps mistranslated back into, into a North American context. Uh, 
I'm, I'm trying to think of this in, in that international context, right, of, of so many different cultural forces are at play that it becomes even more nightmarish trying to find a single thread of weird fiction running through them all. Um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting inroad. I'm sorry, I, I don't have much substantive to say on that, but I think it's a fascinating perspective from both of your angles. One really recent example of that that uh, we just read on the reread is, I'm going to mispronounce this horribly, I'm sorry, Ingi Shen's Jing which was just out in, I want to say, Clark's World? Yes, I was right, Clark's World. Um, and the title of the story is spelled X-I-N-G-C-H-O-U. And it's a Chinese author, no, excuse me, a Singaporean author, writing in English and using a lot of very familiar references from English language speculative fiction. Like, this story is just the most amazing game of spot the reference. You know, it's got Doctor Who, it's got Lovecraft, it's got um, Chinese mythology. And it's using all of that to get at the, the weirdness of the experience of being an immigrant and being in a multicultural society and the strengths and the scariness of that. And it's absolutely brilliant and doing this thing of using familiar tropes as a way to get at unfamiliar. This is absolutely brilliant actually. Thank you that you mentioned this because as an immigrant myself, I could actually relate to certain things because when you move into another culture, to another country, another culture, another culture. So you are alienated, of course, never. and uh, it depends on you how you would actually just sort of develop yourself and stuff in your country. And of course, in this case, it's sort of indescribable and imaginable. <laughs> so it is weird. It is weird, and yet it's also wonderful. So I think this Nietzschean trope about Amor Fati that we all love, of course, and which is actually belonging to another era, the previous era, but I think it, it actually just describes this perfectly, because it is actually love to fate. It is actually literally love to fate. And I think this, I think it's a core thing of Lovecraftiana, just love to fate, Normally, whatever it could be, could it be. And it's just, it is great. Well, and the, and the crossover into Japan is something that I'm fascinated with. We were talking about that a little bit earlier. And I, I wanted to say, since we were talking about it, there, there was an ostensible premise here of like, what should people be reading? And I, I'm super into this conversation about aesthetics, but I wanted to draw in this thing that I just discovered, um, which is a weird fiction text from the 70s. It's a graphic novel um, called The Drifting Classroom. And I'm probably going to see some heads being like, how did you not know about this? But I don't read a lot of comics. and. Um, I was contracted to work on the, the new edition that Viz Media is putting out, that they're putting out the perfect edition soon, and um, it's a retranslation, and they've fixed a lot of the artwork, and this is, I mean, it's a two, it's, the whole thing is about, like, it's these huge three monster um, volumes, and it is, like, the most amazing, weird thing I've ever read. It's about a classroom, an elementary school classroom that is transported into the future, and we're not, we never come away coming, understanding whether it's the near or far future, because there's this really prescient um, discussion of environmental collapse in the center of this that is, it, it, it reads like something that was written now, but it is from the 70s and it's by Kazuo Umetsu, or Umets was his um, pen name, 
And um, these perfect, I can't recommend them enough if you're into weird fiction that is, and it's so not Lovecraftian too. Like it clearly, this, like Kazuma Umetsu was clearly aware of Lovecraft, but it is a non-Lovecraftian weird experience of just constant, like I've never been so horrified by anything in my life. And so if that's, if that's the kind, if you're the kind of person that's like, ooh, then this is for you. Um, it's wonderful. And the first one should be out soon. Um, they're releasing them in stages. And in terms of an international take on weird, I really can't, I haven't encountered anything that has um, moved me in such a way as this. And so if you like comics and things like that, that would be like a great text. And I, I was thinking of giving it to a few people as an introduction to what is weird fiction, which is like a bold choice, I know, but it, it really does have that sort of, like anytime they're like, okay, we've almost figured this. No, we haven't figured it out. And, I, and if you like those sorts of twists and turns and that sort of, why are, and why are we experiencing this? Why has this come to us? That question that a lot of protagonists of weird fiction often ask. Um, it also doesn't answer that question, but it's a really wild ride, so I can't, I can't recommend it enough, especially if you want that international take on what is this conversation we're having about aesthetics and the weird and oppositional things and, and, and all that, so. All right. Sounds amazing. It's dope. So here's my big question for you. Is Stephen King weird fiction? Oh, Lord. So. Why is he weird fiction? I, I, I want to go to that form, and I don't know why. Uh, I think some of Stephen King's fiction is weird fiction, I would say. Um, whether by intention or accident, I can't say. Um, the weird thing about Stephen King is, and I, and I, can't, I don't know if he's kept this attitude, but it goes back to his Dance with God, uh, his, his nonfiction work on horror, where he, he presented horror as a fundamentally conservative genre. Right? The status quo is set, set back in place at the end of every monster story. And I, I see where he's coming from. I personally think he's wrong, uh, and fairly demonstrably wrong, especially after the publication book, which is not unfair, or which is not fair to him. But I do think that some of his stuff is weird. I think he, he approaches it in a stumbling fashion. He tries to get to that cosmic level. I mean, anybody that's read it knows that he's, he's trying to take a swing at cosmic horror. Um, and failing, but I like the attempt. You know, I, 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 especially in some of his shorter fiction, I think he gets a lot closer to 16. I think The Mist is legitimately a fantastic piece of weird fiction. I love the ending of the, the novella. I, can't, I don't like the film. I like the novella ending. Um, but that's legitimate weird fiction, and I think it's outstanding. It's excellent stuff. His novella, N, which is sort of a riff on uh, Mocken's N, is, uh, is also a great piece of weird fiction. I bring up King because he was so dominant of a force in North America, at least, in the 80s and 90s. And by dominant, he basically influenced the entire generation of writers all trying to cash in on his success. Does that mean that weird fiction sort of disappeared during that era? Like, is, do we get weird threading its way through the history of literature, or is it always this constant presence that's working there? And if it's there, who, who was doing it when everyone else was reading uh, Carry. So one of the boundary states, and I'm thinking about this because of the Stephen Kings that do feel more like weird fiction and the ones that don't, is how comfortable the story leaves you with the status quo. Not just if it returns to it, but if it if it is comfortable with the idea of returning to it after you've seen the weirdness as a safe state or not. And in some of Stephen King, you get that 
reassertion of the status quo and everything's basically okay at the end. And in some, you're back in the status quo, but you know, you, you know those dimensions are out there, you know the Langoliers are out there eating everything, and so the status quo now looks much more like a very thin protection. <sighs> This is an interesting question because uh, uh, so many things happen in his novels. <laughs> Whereas actually in Lovecraftian novels, nothing happens so much. It's just always all this thing that Whereas in Stephen King, it's just it's a very complicated plot. That the narrative is really they have the sub narratives and stuff, and we have this absolutely detailed portrayal of all those characters. One could argue that it's because it's sort of like happened now, but at the same time, I would say that, for example, Duma Key probably, Duma Key, Duma Key, Duma Key, this very famous novel piece about the artist, I forgot unfortunately the name, sorry. Um, so one of them, which I regard probably is word fiction, because it's all about uh, the possession, basically, this evil possession of the artist who's doing this absolutely beautiful, marvelous masterpieces, but of course he was possessed. <laughs> so that was actually quite weird, and I think sort of actually Lovecraft in a way. So probably partly he could work out of this, the writer of the fiction, but maybe not exactly. Hmm. Entirely. All right. Um, we should talk about some more writers that we love. So who are our favorite weird writers, past, present, future, if you can think of any? that haven't even started writing yet. There's this guy, <laughs> you wouldn't believe the stuff he's gonna come out with. Um, do you wanna start at the end, Peter? Yes, I'd like to put in a plug for William Sloan, uh, To Block the Night. Yeah. Ever heard of that book? It was published in 1938. Uh, Sloan, I gather, was an editor for most of his career, and then he did some science fiction anthologies, but he wrote his two Novels uh, that are, I, I think, I, I haven't just read them recent times, uh, classics. Uh, in fact, that they've been uh, republished in, in a single volume by the uh, New York New Books um, under an umbrella uh, title. But um, here is a, a, a short novel published a year after Lovecraft died. I found it was cosmic in a way that Lovecraft appreciated, and yet totally different in terms of its style and approach. And it, it also amounts to uh, uh, science fiction, but it's, but it's set in the present day in New York, and there's a, uh, uh, I think he's some sort of academic, has um, spontaneously combusted Something strange has happened to him. He's died, and his friends are trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, he has this mysterious wife, and basically, it's the story of the friends slowly figuring out what's, what's going on. And then you know, there's a lot of dialogue, and there's this banter about you know, college football games. But towards the end, he pulls himself together. Presents, you know, this 
cosmic uh, perspective takes in you know, the universe. I don't want to spoil it, but I think having read this, gosh, it, you know, you, you can like cosmic stories without imitating Lovecraft. There's a few I've already mentioned, of course. Lafarge's The Night Ocean, I think everyone should read quite literally. Uh, uh, Ramsey Campbell's uh, Three Faces of Dale Off trilogy from BS Publishing is heartbreaking and wonderful. Uh, utterly brilliant and beautiful series. Um, the Terror, and the name of the, the, the author's name is totally escaping. I'm sorry? Yes, yes, Simmons. I stumbled across that late, and I think it's wonderful. I love it. Uh, and if I may say, uh, Peter's fiction is excellent. Everyone should read Pastiches. Uh, you have, in fact, in my humble opinion, you have the single greatest life of graphic pastiche ever. Well, uh, life is a hideous thing, I mean, which I love. That's, that's a Woodhouse. Yeah, the Woodhouse. The Woodhouse and Lovecraft pastiche. Uh, wonderful to read. Really, what I've recently did a reread. Wonderful stuff. So yeah, there's there's a ton out there. Um, I think you know, explore bookstores, explore online, explore used bookstores, dive in and try stuff. Find an author you, you don't know. Pick up an anthology you haven't heard of and read authors you haven't heard of. Find something. They're out there. I, I'd like to inject here another plug, if I may, for Adrian McKinty. Does anyone know that? He's an Irish uh, mystery author has a series about the Troubles uh, in, in Ireland. And you may have read about this recently. He decided he, he was broke, he was uh, evicted from his Brooklyn apartment. He said, I, I've got to write a, a thriller that makes money. And now that Adrian went back to him, he came up with a thriller with a terrific gimmick. It's called Chain. It's been on the bestseller list. Well, when I assigned this, uh, Publishers Weekly, my freelancer got back and said, Oh, you, you should know that there are a whole bunch of Lovecraft references throughout it. And so, I, I, of course, I had to read it. It's set on the North Shore of Massachusetts, it's Lovecraft territory. At one point, his heroine goes into the Newburyport Library and enters the Lovecraft wing. Okay? And later, the characters gather at Logan Airport at a bar and, and order the Thulu Brews. Uh, the references to Innsmouth High and, and uh, the Sonic Valley, and they're total throwaways. I mean, if you didn't know Lovecraft, you would just fly over, over them. Uh, I actually had a chance to meet the author at a, at a uh, publicity party. He said, my, my, my editor and agent know nothing about these. I, I just threw them in. Uh, but if you're a Lovecraftian, uh, it, it, it's well, it's, it's, a, it's a terrific thriller, although kind of a nail-biter if, if you're a parent, his children are in jeopardy. Uh, but it's fun, fun to see how we uh, uh, use Lovecraft. And, and yet another example of how Lovecraft pervades our culture uh, at all levels, you know, high and well, literary and popular. Uh, I'll stop there. Probably a little silly to recommend one of the guests of honor, but Sonia Tate's stuff is astonishingly brilliant. Um, and some of it is very overtly Lovecraftian. Um, 
Oh, so Hollow Hearts is honestly one of my favorite modern Lovecraft pastiches, full stop, and beautiful and poetic. And her, a lot of her other stuff is just modern, weird, with ghosts that are not white sheets drifting in and out, and fabulous. Um, another modern author who I love, who's very different, Olivia Llewellyn writes the goriest, sexiest, weird fiction, and it is it's some of the most disturbing stuff that I have read in all of my readings of weird fiction, and I love it. Um, she's got a collection called Furnace. Um, on the anthology side, uh, you already mentioned The Weird, which is a great overview and a great place to find people in every year from the 1800s through the publication point. Um, and very different takes on weirdness as well. And then the other anthology that I really love is um, Dreams from the Witch House, which Joyce Carol Oates put together with modern female Lovecraftian authors. And every story in there is good, which is a very rare thing to say about an anthology. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll recommend two novels, the two weirdest things I've encountered recently, and I don't think either of them are Lovecraftian, but they are both very strange, and the first would be Automatic Eve by Rokuru Inui. It's an Edo-era, um, I guess it's not real, it's not steampunk, even though there's automatons, it's not Lovecraftian, even though there's ineffable weirdness, um, there's like a sumo wrestler, it's sort of like Blade Runner was set in the floating world, it is Dope. And then the other thing that I just started on the recommendation of my friend is The Slinks by Tatiana Tolstoya. It's a uh, Russian novel from about, I think it's 2000, and it is like 1999. It's a nuclear weird, I would say, and I haven't finished it yet, so I don't know if it's going to keep up its pace, but I heard it's fantastic. So that's the other recommendation that I have. I'm sorry? I didn't hear you? I will just, well, I, I am at her, so... Oh, that's cool. Yes, I'll just tell her that she is regarded as one of Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, do you have anyone you want to... I would point it out probably from uh, the modern English-speaking writers. Thomas Ligotti, I believe, uh, something with the Dreamer. Um, then Joyce Carol Oates, I love her. I mean, just for many years, I just, she was one of my favorite. I read her in Russian. Then I started reading in English uh, and pretty much everything for <laughs> it has this kind of sort of like which builds wi Wi thing. And maybe it's, uh, the, the third situation is a bit weird, but I think David Lynch and his writings, okay, and we know, yes, he's a filmmaker and stuff, but his scripts and his writings, I think they could be regarded as weird. And uh, all these Blue Rose magazines because it was between Pixin and stuff and Lynchin, but at the same time they also have these weird fiction vibes as well, I think. So they could be regarded as such. Okay, we've, uh, we've got time for a couple questions, if anybody has any. So the question is, um, 
Sorry, ask me a question again. Like, what about weird horror? Like, yeah, so what about weird horror lends itself well to the short, the short form, novellas and uh, short stories? Yeah. What? Okay. I think it. I, I jam on this too, um, and I think it's because um, as a writer, uh, I feel much more comfortable experimenting with form and with style in a short piece than I do in a novel-length work because. Um, you kind of have to keep it up in a novel, and if, if you have a great first 50 pages and then the rest of it is not great, then people are like, that's not a good novel. Whereas if you have, um, you know, within the short fiction, you, you can just sort of be like, okay, we're doing this, and then it's done. And um, I, so I feel more able to be my weirdest self in short fiction. I don't know if that's a motivation I can speak to with other authors, but, you know, we were, we were talking about, um, you were talking about how um, King... Um, has a lot more going on in his novels than Lovecraft has going on in his stories and novellas. And um, I think that's definitely true in terms of plot, but in terms of internal, external, I think Lovecraft often has a lot more going on internally. And um, it's and King has a lot more going on externally. And you know, I would think about something like The Hound, which is my very favorite Lovecraft story. And like, not a lot happens in that. It's just some guy thinking about good times when he used to hang out with his boyfriend robbing graves, right? But it's like, there's just a lot going on there. And um, you know, when I think about ambitious, I'm just saying it. All right, no, no, That's, no, it's, no, it's no, just real no, life. It's no. just real life. And so, but you know, you think about this idea where it's like, no, 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 no. It's this short story about these two decadents who go around robbing graves, and then like this stuff happens to them, like, I think that would be a terrible novel, but for a three-page short, it's just like a breakneck ride, and so I think, I think that's why, um, at least I tend to gravitate towards horror short stories rather than novels, because I kind of want to get punched in the eye with the weirdest, nastiest stuff you got, but I don't want 500 pages of that. I really, really, that was my issue with The Drifting Classroom, where it's like, I get it, and it's worth it, I just had to read it all at once, and I think if I had been able to read it in a, a progression of volumes coming out, I would have been a little like, all right, so, I don't know, that's my answer, I'm sticking with it. Yeah, yeah novels are, fundamentally in a novel, you have to have some variation in tone and mood and pace, and you can do brilliant things that way, but there's something very pure about the mood and the focus you can get in a short story. And so much weird fiction is about either claustrophobia broadly or agoraphobia broadly, and you can just you can stay at that scope for a short story in a way that you can't see the novel. I think it kind of depends on the focus that the author has a little bit, right? Like Lovecraft and, and in modern day Legati both make the argument that the short story is the perfect form for weird fiction because atmosphere is all atmosphere of morality. Characterization doesn't matter, plotting doesn't matter, it's the atmosphere that has to be there. And there, I think it's a legitimate claim, but I don't know if every piece of weird fiction has to take that track. So I think that we could, we, I mean, obviously we see novels uh, that work as weird horror, horror, weird fiction, however you want to cash it out, that manage to justify their own internal life, right? Um, and their own structure, but they have to, to some extent get away from that idea of atmosphere first and foremost because I, I don't think you can really drag that out for 500 pages as long as um, I think that that works much better in the short story form. I, I, I agree and I, I think The Mist is a brilliant uh, short horror story but I think Stephen King tends to write supernatural thrillers. Yeah, yeah. there's supernatural stuff going on but basically they, they follow uh, 
thriller pattern where somebody's in jeopardy, there's a bad guy, you know who the villains are, and it's you know, fun to sort of seeing uh, how it all turns out in the end, and it's usually a pretty predictable one. I, I want to give another relatively contemporary example. T.E.D. Klein, anyone out there a fan? Uh, he wrote a short story called The Events of Cora Farm, uh, which is, I think, a, a modern-day classic. He expanded it into a novel called The Ceremonies, which I believe was a bestseller. But um, you know, the events of Forest Farm basically has everything uh, that the ceremonies does in, in, in a more uh, uh, efficient, compact uh, form. So um, it's tough to sustain, uh, as we're all saying, it, it, you know, sort of that consistent move over hundreds of pages. And, and uh, I think for that reason, in many classes in the job are uh, shorter form. Alright, probably have time for one more question. If anyone has one. Sure. Yeah, so um, I was thinking about what we had said about Taoism, since that's fascinating. Uh, and uh, I have a question if it's going to be Dude, we got one minute left, dude. Yeah. <laughs> That's time to question Western Definitely had to ask a more devout or devout raised friend of mine, like, what was Jesus's beef with fig trees? And that's really weird. So um, I don't know, maybe like going with that pass. <laughs> All right. Well, is it a quick or? Thanks for coming. Uh, we'll have your lunch. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.